It was a cold and snowy Wisconsin morning just off the buzzing freeway when I went to the Pettit National Ice Center outside of Milwaukee to visit with two great American competitors and Olympians and now coaches, Bonnie Blair Crookshank and Dave Crookshank, husband and wife, joined us on Sport and the Growing Good. Many Americans, of course, know of Bonnie Blair and her great heroics and also remember Dave for his great accomplishments in speed skating. These are two of the great speed skaters who have ever come through the U.S. and at, at the world level as well. But over recent years, they've also made their impact as coaches and as leaders of the speed skating world and helping new people come and grow and develop and to reach their own heights. So it was just truly a pleasure to get to join Bonnie and Dave and to learn from them on sport and the growing good. A couple of things especially stood out. It was remarkable to hear about the generations of mentoring that have occurred in the world of speed skating and how both Bonnie and Dave have played active roles in that. They both benefited from it and they played active roles from it. They, they discussed with really interesting detail about how different people affected them at different points in their career and how then they in turn paid that back and supported others. So it was really great to learn about the mentoring that has occurred in U.S. speed skating. A second aspect of the conversation, which was so rich and I enjoyed so much, it was fascinating to hear how these great, great leaders and competitors have thrived over the years. But another part that I really appreciated was hearing about how important it is to come to know the athletes you work with and how often many coaches don't know their athletes. And that includes both the psychological aspects, but also the physical aspects of their training and their development. So they, both Dave and Bonnie shared really tremendous thoughts about that. The last thing I will say is just being at the Pettit Center itself was really meaningful to me. The Pettit Center has been the epicenter of U.S. speed skating and most great U.S. champions have come through there. So to be able to go through that space with Bonnie and Dave was a great experience and for them to point out the different things that have happened there and where they happened and to recall their own experiences was, was really awesome. So thank you, Bonnie and Dave, for joining us in Sport and the Growing Good. First thing, you know, you realize about Chicago is it's pushy, right? I mean, you you live here, your kid probably plays against kids that are playing Chicago, and it's it's a doggy dog kind of environment. Meaning, parents are competitive, kids are competitive. Um, in Northbrook, where we where I grew up, I mean, baseball was super competitive. Our soccer team was, you know, state champions. Um, our speed skating club had an Olympian from 1952 until I retired in 1998. Uh, we had gold medalists, silver medalists. I mean, we had good. We had our own um, velodrome there. We had an outdoor skating rink, so it was a, a really strong sports community for sure. Um, 
and then I grew up in a bunch of different sports, and, and I think that really helped, that each one was pretty competitive. Um, and, yeah, I just got into speed skating. My parents didn't like hockey, so I got into speed skating. I loved the speed right away. That's the thing that addicted me to the sport more than any one person. Or I mean, I didn't know anybody. Um, I just came in, and I always used to go in the driveway and go in circles on a skateboard. I used to ride my bike in circles. I just I liked going fast. And I still like going fast, so um, <laughs> like that's just, I guess, who I am and what I. But then, you know, when you see the other people, then you, you know, you start to realize, and you hear from Bonnie later on, you know, when Bonnie beat these Germans, I think other people, even in other countries, started to realize they could beat these Germans and they could beat the Russians. It was the same for us when you had people coming from your club that made Olympic teams and did well in world championships and won Olympic medals. You're kind of like, well. Like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I see them at practice. I could do that. So it was a real nice mentoring program, which, again, as we've talked about, um, you know, with Casey many, many times, Casey Fitzrandolph, is the mentoring program that came from Eric Hyden and to Bonnie, Dan, and Nick Tom. It's that generation. And then from that generation, I was five years younger than them. So it was myself and a couple others. And then Casey is five years behind me, and he mentored under me and other guys. Um, you know, and then Casey mentored, you know, Joey Cheek and um, Kip Carpenter and the, and the mentoring just kind of mm-hmm. kept going. And we're losing some of that now because of everything wants to go to Salt Lake City. And then you don't have the, you know, like when Sidney Crosby came up, he lived with Mario Lemieux. Mm-hmm. Um, when a lot of these young hockey guys in the hockey culture, because I'm in the hockey business, you know, they get mentored under somebody that's been in the league for a long time. And that's what I had behind these guys. That's what the guys behind us had. Hey, you know, this is a good track. This is what you need to do. Hey, make sure you warm down after that workout. Like, it's going to help you tomorrow. Just all the little things that made U.S. speed skating really, really successful and made clubs successful. Um, that that Northbrook theme really was, was strong. And we're still friends with, you know, lots of people from Northbrook. That, um, that club was really, really strong. So it's like a cross-generational mentoring, even more than like the physical location of you had these people right in front of you who had done it a couple of years ahead of you. Yeah, for sure. And and Bonnie, I know you've had just many people along your journey have been very impactful. One that caught my eye, especially especially I know you've talked about it a lot. It's just with Kathy Priestner and how she how she came in into your life in particularly meaningful times and ways yeah you know i mean and like total coincidence right because uh kathy was living in champagne because her husband was at the university of illinois and you know she you know having been a silver medalist herself um involved in the sport of speed skating you know here she finds herself in champagne at the U of I, it's the U of I ice arena. So she thought she'd kind of, you know, take a gander over there. And of course, this is so long ago, I can't even totally remember exactly how it happened. But, but, you know, I think she just, she thought, well, you know, I don't have a lot to do here in town. This is maybe something where I could get involved with this club and, you know, kind of give back. So she did, she kind of, you know, took me under my wing, or uh, she took me under her wing, sorry, and uh, 
yeah, the next thing I kind of know, I was, we had come up here to Milwaukee, where it was the old rink, which sits on the same plate without the roof on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we had been up, we were coming up for uh, a pack style meet. So that's kind of like short track, but you're on the big track. But so you have heat semis and finals with a bunch of kids all on the ice all at the same time. And like the, we had been up for one weekend, but the next weekend they were going to do a pack meet as well as having some long track races. And they were like, oh, well, why don't you try that too? So, you know, and then some of the other skaters that were here that I knew from skating over the years, like Dan Jansen, some, oh, yeah, you should try this, you should try this. And so literally on my very first race, I skated a time that qualified me to skate in the Olympic trials, which was the following weekend or two weekends later or something. And But Kathy was part of that um that journey of that me first being introduced to long track speed skating and you know and then for her to you know years later um be the general manager at the rink in calgary and after kind of crossing the line she's like one of the first people i hug on the backstretch like you know how weird is that that you know, even after all those years or whatever that separation, we've still had this great re- relationship and friendship um, because she was kind of looking for something to do because she had nothing to do in Champaign, Illinois. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, it was it, it was a neat building of a great friendship and um to this day, you know, we still have a great, you know, we don't see each other as much, but, you know, yeah, that, that relationship was a very big part of that journey of me getting into the long track section of speed skating versus only just pack style. Yeah. It's interesting as someone who's totally outside of the sport and doesn't know it. I always, when I watch it on TV or something, it seems so, in so many ways, so technical to me in terms of even what you wear and the positions and the it seems like an extremely technical sport in lots of ways but you both have mentioned like the relational impact that like the first stages were these relationships and people and so that leads me to the next question i have for for both of you is that coach athlete relationship and how how you know how you know it's a healthy one and how you know when change is needed because it, it sounds like especially in this sport you know there's there's an intense relationship between a coach and an athlete and so what what do the best coach athlete relationships look like in your sport and how do you know when to change so maybe i'll start and then you can go because we had a little bit different pass on that um for the most part a lot of times like let's say when you make a national team in speed skating um, and that usually comes from a national championships they look at the times of skaters and and then they kind of pick those top ones in the races or the overall um, to get a group because then they wind up training together like, you know, or have training that you're invited to training camps over the summer mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Now athletes are kind of a little bit more together on a yearly basis. It wasn't quite that way back when we were skating, you know, maybe kind of depended on where you lived or whatever. So. 
like me living in Champaign, you know, once I kind of made that national team, I was, uh, the coaches were um, Mike Crow and Diane Holm. And then I'd get like a piece of paper in the mail with uh, a monthly program. And that was, you know, here, go do it. Well, I'm in Champaign by myself. And, you know, Kathy was instrumental in that Mm -hmm. a little bit. A couple other skaters in Champaign, we would get together once I figured out what even all the workouts even meant. Um, you would be invited to maybe go to camp. So really the coaches were kind of basically picked by our organization. And so you'd have coaches that were, and, you know, so then it's not like I had to pay my coach. Like my coach was the coach of the organization and I just kind of stayed with that coach. And you didn't have a choice whatever. either. Nope. And you did have a choice. And that's where kind of Dave will come in with that. Um, but I just went with the national team and I did, you know, what those coaches were. And at some point in times, some of those coaches get changed, but it wasn't necessarily my choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it would just it would it would just happen for one reason or another, um, you know, kind of between 90 and 91, those of us that were kind of the upper echelon were not as happy with how the coaching was going. Our coach at that time, Mike Crow, um, was kind of not taking as active role in being a coach. So he wasn't with us on a lot of trips and doing a lot of the traveling that he normally would have. And I think we started losing some of that. So we kind of went to the organization and was like, you know, I think we need a change. Um, and that's when Pete Mueller was brought in to be a coach. Um, so once again, I'm still with the national team. And after one year, I skated great with Pete. But then the next year, not so good. And so then that's where I was kind of like, okay, like I felt I was overtrained. Um, you know, I probably, and I think because I was overtrained mentally, I probably wasn't as in good of a, a place as I needed to be. Not that I was mentally distraught or anything, but I think, you know, those things kind of go hand in hand for sure. You know, when things are going great mentally, you're great. But if, you know, you're struggling, you know, obviously you're going to kind of struggle too mentally because then you're questioning, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Am I doing the right thing? That sort of, you know, that those sort of mental challenges. And so then once again, I was like, all right, well, I need to make, you know, that one, I like, I knew I needed to make a change. I knew I had to do something different. And at that point, Nick Thomas, who had been a teammate of ours, had retired and gone into coaching. And a lot of the same things that worked well for Nick when we were skating and training together worked well for me. And I was like, all right, well, I want Nick to be my coach. And he had kind of been in an, in an assistant role, but then he became my full-time coach. But once again, still with the national team, and, you know, Nick was then my coach. And, and you know, yeah, so I think, you know, I had gotten old enough to a point where I knew I needed a change, where some of those other changes kind of more happened um, uh, just circumstance mm-hmm, mm-hmm, i guess mm-hmm. if if you want to call it that mm-hmm. uh so yeah so then dave had a different 
situation with coaching that he can elaborate on? Yeah, I mean, I grew up with a coach in Northbrook. Actually, she was from Park Ridge, Nancy Sweater-Peltz, four-time Olympian um, herself. And she took kind of a, she was more of a junior coach. Like, she was on the junior world team for coaching a couple times. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really start, tra- I skated, but I didn't really train until I was like 16. Um, so then I trained with her like 16, 17, and on my first Olympic team at 18. Um, and then she actually made that same team as a skater, um, which was a little weird because your coach was actually yeah. training and actually ended up making the team. Um, and so then that kind of, at that point, I was like, okay, well, she's doing her thing. I got to kind of do my thing. Um, and I would say that's probably where this whole thing sprung for me was, hey, I got to figure out a lot of stuff on my own. Um, I see what the national team is doing. I really don't like what they're doing. I think that's probably not a great fit for me. Um, Even though necessarily you're qualified for the national team, like Bonnie said, you can go and train on your own. You just have to pay for your own coach. Um, So I did that for a couple years. I did some stuff on my own. I went back and forth on the national team. you know, but for me, it was never really, um, you know, figuring out if the coach worked or not. I would say, like she said, Pete Mueller, I think, had some great things. He's a great guy. Um, but the training for a sprint guy for me just wasn't, we did a lot of volume. And it hurt her, and it probably hurt me even more because I'm more of a, a sprint guy than, um, than she is. So, I, you know, it just... Like she said, it just didn't feel right. And so then I started to do a lot of stuff on my own. Um, the last years that I skated, I kind of had a coach, a guy actually I skated with. Um, but I did a, almost, I don't want to say all my program, but a lot of my own stuff. Um, and then that, hence, the minute I retired, I started coaching pretty much the next day. Mm. Um, just because I knew um, that there was a void there. How I think that it would impact the skaters um today the way we coach i would say very independent um our kind of rule of thumb is you know if we get hit by a bus you should be able to take care of yourself and our job is to educate you and give you as much knowledge and information on technique on training on sleep on nutrition on preparation as we can we will help guide you, but it's your journey. Um, so it's it's not, you know, like a basketball coach or soccer coach or a hockey coach that say, hey, this is the workout today. We will present it in a way, this is what we wrote for today. How do you feel today? What's your body, you know, testing the Whoop watch, testing an Apple watch? How, what are our biometrics? What are, what are we getting feedback from? And how do we as a team make the right decision for the workout today? Yeah. So sometimes we'll put our foot down and say, no, you're doing that workout today. Like, I'm tired. I know you're just tired, but you're going to do the workout today. Yeah. Other days, you know, if we get a read, we look at them, we assess them every time they come in. They have their journals that they do. Um, so it's it's quite a bit different than when we were training. Yeah. Um, we maybe did journals, but coach never looked at it. Or, you know, we always had a guy, Dr. Carl Foster, was actually um, in lacrosse just retired but um he was actually here at um um st mary saints um sinai 
was Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And he used to do all of our exercise science and whatever. Every time he would show up, he would assess us and be like, you're too tired. You need a couple days off. Every time. <laughs> like we, really, we didn't like him coming because we knew we were going to test, but we knew when he came we were going to get a day off. So but, it had the good and the bad. Yeah, the coaches were, I mean, in all honesty, Diane Holm, like, great coach, but Eric survived and 15 other people didn't. It was one guy that mm-hmm. could do survival of the he fittest. He could still do yeah. the work. Yeah, and it was he just had an unreal and still does to this day. Just he's a freak, Phenom. like Michael Phelps, like yeah. just a freak. Mm-hmm. But everyone else crashed. And I think because, too, you know, back in the day, I don't think there was, you know, the knowledge of what's there today for that exercise physiologist that mm-hmm. like and sleep, like a lot of that stuff, like. We were flying by the seat of our pants. Our coaches were, you know, the coaches would write a program, but they were, like, there was no real major knowledge behind it. They were kind of guessing at how do you peak and what's the best way to peak. And, you know, probably eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before every race was not the ideal food, but it worked for me. Yeah. But, it like, is that what somebody should eat, right? you know, kind of two hours before they go to the ice rink? Yeah. You know, maybe not. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I think a lot of that was guessing. I think there's a lot more there's a lot more information out there for coaches today. And, you know, and I, I think, you know, probably even with my last coach, Nick, I think we probably had more dialogue, but it was still, it was, it was still more... It's not like what Dave's trying to do here with the athletes and make them, you know, more accountable and and, and have input and, you know, you know, not to say that they're writing the program. He's obviously putting a lot of time into it and writing that program, but making sure you've got that dialogue with mm-hmm. the athlete and get to know your athlete to know and look in their eyes and go, yeah, you are tired today, so we might change things up mm-hmm. a little bit where I don't think back then a lot of that really happened with mm-hmm. us like you well, know. it still doesn't happen today i mean and I st- you, yeah. with, with grant and and you know looking in the team sports and I, you know i'm with the kings grants with minnesota i mean you look at a peanut butter and jelly sandwich okay so we work with a special ops guy can't say his name but we work with a guy that's high end like high 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 end over the way over the seals and, and, you know, they talk about, hey, how did those guys maximize performance? This is the stuff they always talked about, was how do I get rid of the demons inside of our head? How do I, maybe peanut butter and jelly sandwich was the calming influence in her, although it might have had a 3% negative impact physiologically on her. It gave her a 10% boost mm-hmm. mentally on the comfort. And, like, we need to talk through how do we get into that environment where we can go a place that's, that's a pretty hard place to extract something so physically demanding that you can get there and you can enjoy, you know, the journey without feeling pressure and without feeling load. And, you know, we had, you know, Aaron Jackson came in here, we had one 500 and she tripped and fell, not fell, but stumbled and didn't make our team. You probably followed that in the trials. (laughs) One of our girls had to give up her spot, but at the end of the day, that's, that's, you have all the goods, mentally can you get there so the coach has to be able to tap into those on an individual sport like and you see it in golf and you see it in track and field how do we get you to be you and I so 
intimate together that we can just get out there and it's caddy caddy yeah. player relationship is much more where I see the coach now than you know Grant's coach is like hey we're doing this and then he never talks to him at all and I'm like mm-hmm. you know I've had how many professional guys that we've coached that they're like God, I never talked to the coach like what it's a number mm-hmm. on the back like mm-hmm. how, how mm-hmm. do you and I get that it's business and you have mm-hmm. to move guys around but especially college coaches how do you know how to get the most out of your player if you don't know if you never mm-hmm. talk to them mm-hmm. and you never hey you know Pete let's go out let's have a coffee like how's it going you know how's schoolwork going how's you know are you eating good you get you know how's the adjustment coming to Minnesota like it's staggering to us that that communication is not involved because these kids have so much stuff going on now yeah. social media stuff bullying like not getting their schoolwork done it's so much that you need to support them yeah. you know and you need you knew, as as we try to I need everyone on our team to if they hear something on a bike someone gives a warning sign like I'm not getting in my school we need to help them we need mm-hmm. to help them mm-hmm. as a team mm-hmm. not as that's the coach's job this is a, a village that's going to be mm-hmm. raising this team and and I think that's the culture again that we're trying to influence that's very very rare in in pro sports maybe on some Red Bull teams maybe some F1 teams but it's it's very hard to find that chemistry that everyone knows they have to support each other and and support the role of yes we're individual sport but what's your role on the team how do you support your teammates and and that isn't in our sport it's it's glazed on, like just top layer glazed on, but it's not like the special ops case. It's not worked on. Mm-hmm. And we want to work on that because that's where, to us, that's where the performance is, is getting into that interrelationship coach-athlete. It was one of the topics I wanted to ask you about was like sacrifice and like highest level um, commitment. And thinking about that both physically, but then also kind of, like your broader life and I wasn't going to ask this but it sounds like it but based on what you just said like to get to the highest levels of physical commitment you have to have that psychological and social under underpinning that foundation with the people around you it sounds like you're thinking about that purposefully with your training in terms of knowing each other yeah we actually did we did through one of our other friends who got this from special ops but they do um the cybernetics testing and the guy that evaluates it said our two tests were the hardest two evaluations he's ever done you two us two and and why my and again not going into it my understanding because we can hurt and we can take a lot of stuff meaning we put up with a lot to get where we want to go so meaning um you know if i know i want to race really good like bonnie said i know there's some stuff i have to do to hurt mentally and physically to get there so when you do that your assessment's going to be off because every the way you view like mm-hmm. people would say ah, i'm not gonna i just go out to eat tonight because we'll be like no we have to cook a good meal tonight for our daughter and we have to drive you know, to Minnesota to make sure we're supporting our son. And we had we put up with a lot of shit yeah. to to get what we want. 
Yeah. And so most parents, I'm not going to do that. We're constantly, we go, why would a parent do that? You know, we had a kid get hurt the other day. The mom took an hour to get here. We'd have been like, we'd have been here no matter what we were doing. Down, boom, we're here. Mm-hmm. So when you do that, all your values on mm-hmm. everything else in life kind of changes because you're so dialed in to mm-hmm. what you need to do for that immediate mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. that it's we have a hard time finding that with other people we talk to mm-hmm. and other people we have friendships with because mm-hmm. you're like well why didn't you do that <laughs> like mm-hmm. how come you didn't work harder to try to get that or excuses to do that you know we have kind of a hard line saying hey you need, you need to get it we're more old school mm-hmm. you need to get mm-hmm. it done mm-hmm. like and you know, it takes it takes work to get mm-hmm. it done, and that's the way we've raised our kids. To, you know, Grant's been a captain everywhere he's been. Like it's just get it done, get it done. How do you, as an elite level performer, both of you elite level, the highest levels of performance, your outliers in your performance, but also, I'm sure in the process that led to that, and they're, they're, they relate to each other clearly. How do you communicate with or intermix with people who are, say, the JV soccer player at the local high school? Maybe you don't interact with them. But I think the question I'm leading to is, like, when we think about sacrifice or we think about commitment, and we've got a, a young person who is nowhere near your level of performance, how do we think about sacrifice, like, in right right-fitting sacrifice, right-fitting commitment, if my aspiration is not to be Olympic gold medalist. Right, but I I think everything's all relative, though, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe where, you know, we take it to the nth degree, somebody who's like, you know, a JV player or whatever doesn't have to take it quite that far, but Mm -hmm. they still have to, you still... If you want to be there and you want to do, there's still mm-hmm. certain things you've got to do along the way, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, you know, where, yeah, if you want to take it to the absolute, then you've got to do the absolute stuff there. So I think to a certain extent, it, it's all kind of relative. It, you just have to, like, look at the big picture to see what it is that needs to be done in order to, to, to accomplish the goal and the dream that you have. Yeah. Right. I think you're both helping me understand Casey better, because I, <laughs> Casey, if he listens to this, may laugh. But he was telling me about his process growing up, where his parents would drive he and his sister, his siblings, over here every day after school, pick them up, you know, 15 minutes early from school every day, drive over from Verona, yeah. and the sacrifice that they were willing to make to do that. Well, that's um, what his parents that, you did, did the same? From, from Chicago to here. come up every day. Every, every day. day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably a little bit further, maybe? It is. Miles, yeah, yeah, 75 miles, so a little bit more. And so did the, did the willingness to make that commitment, um, was that rooted in that you already knew what the goal was? So part of this question maybe that I asked is, like, do you have to set the goal? Did you know, I want to be an Olympian at that point? No. No, and I, and I think finishing on Bonnie's, it's a daily battle for us, and maybe more for me than it is for her, um, to check and balance those conversations. Mm-hmm. Because we want to put, like, our, we had an athlete the other day, and I said something to her, and she goes, I know, Dave, 
I'm not your body. Yeah. And I was like, well, I was like, okay. And so I'm, we constantly are, are easing off the throttle um, because I think it's just who we are. It's like pff, the pedal's down, you know, so we always have to back off the pedal. I think just because of, of what we want to do and the drive to be that good. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think more for us, my, the drive for my parents was, and I'm sure for her parents as well, I, you know, knowing them was they saw something that their kids like to do. Um, we saw something that our kids like to do. Um, I think that's the drive more than I had no, honestly, I literally wanted to play division one soccer and I wanted to play potentially pro soccer. I would have said that till I'm 16. Um, and then at 17, I was like, well, you know, okay, I'll try to skate for a year. I got, this is my last year of junior worlds. I'll try to make the junior world team, you know, I'll try to get top five. I won the junior world 500. So I'm like, okay, that went pretty good. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll try to make an Olympic team. Maybe I won't. But then I got halfway into that year and I'm like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make it. I have to make it. And then that's like, not until five months, six months before we had our trials did I go like, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I always saw the Olympics. I knew I liked the Olympics, but there was, you know, I had baseball, I had soccer, you had mm-hmm. girlfriend, you had all this other stuff going on. It just wasn't like, I didn't have the focus. Mm-hmm. I just didn't. And I think you were kind of the same way through high school, right? Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, like, you know, I grew up in Champaign, Illinois. And so, you know, a majority of all the competitions were, you know, we had one competition in Champaign a season. So, I mean, virtually every weekend, my parents drove to Chicago and we raced in, you know, suburbs of Chicago. You know, you came up to Wisconsin a couple times a year, maybe Minnesota once. You might go to Michigan once. Um, But a majority of the time was going back and forth to Chicago. And, you know, that's like I'm the youngest of six kids. And I really kind of almost grew up as an only child because the other ones were so much older. But you know, by that time, you know, I think, I I think too, my dad probably saw something in me, but yet, you know, I don't think I really knew that at that point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know that until, you know, I kind of was with Kathy and skated that first lawn track. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that first lawn track race was the first time that I thought, well, Well, it wasn't then. That was, I made the Olympic trials. But then when I skated the Olympic trials, I was eighth in my, in my very first Olympic trials. Like, and they, and at that point they took five for 500. Mm -hmm. I was like three away from doing this twice. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, that'd be kind of cool if I could go to the Olympics. And I remember watching Eric Hyden and thinking, oh yeah, that would be kind of cool to go to an Olympic. So you know, I think for me, it was it was a gradual basis. Um, and I think I was lucky enough to have people like Kathy and some people in, that were instrumental in there that saw something in me that, you know, kind of took me under their wing. And but it was it was more of a gradual basis of me realizing what that potential then could be. Mm-hmm. And 
So then, yeah, I went to the 84 games, and I'm like, if I could be anywhere close to 10th, that would be great. And I was 8th in those Olympics. And I mean, like, if you would have watched me cross the finish line, you probably would have thought I won because I was, like, so ecstatic with being 8th that, you know, this was, like, the best thing since sliced bread. And, you know, then, yeah, then I was just, I was just, on, you know, a great uphill at that point. And um, I don't know even what the original question was now anymore or how I got to that point. But Well, some of it was this idea of determining what sacrifice is right yeah, for and, you and, as an athlete. And right, yeah. and, and I think, you know, so part of that too was, you know, like we never went on family vacations. Like our money was spent going back and forth to Chicago and staying in hotels and eating out you know, mm-hmm. virtually almost every weekend all the way through the winter. Mm-hmm. And you'd start in the, your season would start with short track and then it would kind of go to long track and then you'd go back to short track again. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we did as a family. And, you know, I never really knew of anything different. I, I was involved in some stuff in, in within high school and, you know, ran some track and field, did some like recreational softball, um, you know, things like that. But the skating was the thing that mm-hmm. I enjoyed the most mm-hmm. and kept, you know, I love to go to the rink. I'd love to go to the practice. I'd love to go to Chicago and go to the competitions. Mm-hmm. And I think that gradualness, you know, it was something that I never had too much too soon where I look at some athletes and I think some of them went through something like that and then they're burnt out and then they're mm-hmm. done. Um, you know, so like because it was on a gradual basis, like I didn't retire till my 31st birthday. Like, and you know, even then I, I still loved what I did, but I just felt like that was the time to mm-hmm. call it quits. Of course, now some of them are like 35, what? Claudia's in her 47 or whatever she is but you know yeah could I have kept I mean I I still love to go skate Mm -hmm. um you know I don't have what it takes to compete right now but but um but yeah you know I I, it was on a gradual basis and I think I like I was lazy in the very beginning as far as when that training program came in the mail on a piece of paper like I'd find excuses not to have to go do, and who was really watching me anyway, right? So if I missed something, nobody knew what I was going to do. But that was also my first stint at really training, right? So now that even I got some of those in, that's when I started getting better. And then I realized on my own that if I do more of these programs, I'm going to get better and I'm going to go faster and the clock's going to read more numbers that I wanted. So, I mean, to me, it was it was very self-taught. However, I also grew up in a family where, even though they were all older than me and stuff, you know, my sister Mary, we couldn't go to bed until she won the card game at night. So, you know, there was this competitiveness within our family, and, and not unhealthy, but there was definitely a drive within our family and I think maybe for me, it just took me a little long. And But I was still very competitive even when I was younger 
and wanting to win. But I think then when it came to like really having to train, then that took a different mindset versus going to the rink two to three times a week for practice and racing on the weekend. You know, it, it takes a whole different thing when you're that becomes your life where you know, on those younger years, that wasn't my life. It's kind of what I did as a sidebar. But now that's my life. And that, I think it took a little bit more for me to understand that. But it was also kind of self-taught to a certain extent. But I didn't need anybody to push me anymore because I realized if I trained more, I was going to go faster. And the, I think back to the group setting, right? I mean, the group setting that she surrounded herself were, you know, with world champion, world record holder, like the group pushed itself. Yeah. Um, and like we had a guy the other day that said, hey, you know, that was a great workout last Saturday. You know, I needed I needed the group for that was great. That group really helped. And I think, again, back to our the Northbrook culture, mm-hmm. the culture mm-hmm. that we grew up with in speed skating, having enough of our friends that we still talk to and you know of eight people or whatever that we still have that network so when you have that it just pushes the whole the whole group so that if they're sacrificing and those are your buddies like you don't really feel like you're sacrificing because everybody's doing it like where my son two nights ago called hey you know this guy's going on vacation this guy's going on vacation this guy's going on vacation like why don't i it's harder in that setting because you feel like you're sacrificing so much more where to us like i'm like Grant, that's like normal like so it wasn't mm-hmm. so much sacrifice yes it was by a nor a normal person looking mm-hmm. at us mm-hmm. but when she's doing it and my other two buddies are doing it and then another buddy's doing it it's like well everybody's doing it mm-hmm. so like i'm normal like i didn't feel like i was in the sacrifice bucket mm-hmm. like i'm missing christmas well how many times did we race out here on New Year's Eve night? I'd be literally racing 10 minutes before the ball drop. Yeah. Like, literally. You yeah. wouldn't even think anything of it. Yeah. It's just because every, there were 100 other guys. That were it's doing. all what you're comparing right. yourself to, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, yes. Are there things that we missed? But, yes, of course, there was. But on the flip side, I think we gained so much and... You know, yeah, are there things I missed in high school yeah. and think, yeah, I never went to a vice versa dance. I cheerleaded for a half a season and had to give it up. And, you know, there were things that, yes, I missed out on. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, I felt like I gained so much that, yeah, yeah I missed that, but it didn't bother me. Right. It wasn't like, oh my God, I've got to be here. So I can't, like, I, I never looked at it that way. I, mm-hmm. I look. I was always more the positive of I'm looking at what I'm gaining versus what I'm losing. This question might be a stretch, but so again, it's like this balance of internal, like internal motivation, internal drive, internal commitment. Then you also need this kind of social supportive network, like you just talked about, that around you, including fellow competitors, parents, others. But then I'm also wondering about others, and I've read about this with you, Bonnie, and um, with regard to the East Germans. So like having, you have the supporters with you. Is there any value in having like thinking about what others are doing, whether it's a competitor or someone else, like who's not necessarily 
your supporter, but did, did that motivate your your training at all uh, throughout throughout? Yeah. And how so specifically? Yeah. Or did you? I mean, I mean to me, like you know, I'll just never forget one of the first times internationally uh, I got to travel and we went to Davos, Switzerland. And so I was skating, I was coasting around the outside because you used to coast on the outside, now you coast on the inside of the track. But coasting with one of my teammates, who was a guy, and, you know, I was like, oh, you know, point out the different people to me, you know, like, you know, oh, there's Gaetan Boucher, he's from Canada, he's mm. won XYZ, and, you know, and he's a sprinter, and this, you know, different people and that. But when I got to, you know, uh, different tracks or whatever and and my those best competitors were out on the ice that was like fuel for my fire like i was excited to be there i you, you know yes is it scary maybe it's scary in a way but to me that's thrilling and exciting and i want to see how i can be up against them and so you know as it came to be you know trying to compete against um the east germans and you know, in 1986 at the World Championship, or kind of prior to the World Championships, I would always, I was third, 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 always on the third pedestal. And, and at the World Championships in the second 500, I tied one of them for second. And, you know, like I had coaches from other countries coming up and congratulating me. And they're like, oh, now my girls see that they can compete with them. And then the very next weekend, we that was in Japan, we went to Germany and I beat both of them. And, you know, it was like, yeah, like that, that was huge. And like I said, having other countries, athletes and coaches congratulating you for finally breaking that East German dominance was huge. And so, but to me, like that was thrilling in it. Like I even get excited when you know, we see the top Americans when they, you know, if they come here to our track or whatever, it's thrilling and exciting to have the best of the best there. Like, and that's what I, you know, I worry about at the Olympics. Like, if if those that are there or don't get to get on a plane because of COVID or whatever, and now you're racing and now you're not racing against the best of the best, like to me, a little bit of those medals are going to be tainted if your best people aren't able to actually show up on the starting line. And that to me would be, that would be really sad because as an athlete, you want the best of the best to be there and you want to go up against them and you want to see how you fare with the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. You see this exploding industry right now of like performance coaching and not just in your sport but in every sport whether it's just like strength and speed coaching or um, sport specific um, coaching what are your broad observations of this field maybe Dave to start just is that a positive trend and what what concerns do you have about that broadly yeah I mean I I think pretty simple question Um, hopefully simple answer it's I mean, I think it's great, right? I mean, individual coaching, uh, more education is great. Like, there is, yeah, a lot of smoke and mirrors out there, but for the most part, everyone's doing pretty safe stuff. It's pretty good. Um, The concern is, I think, again, as we talked about when you came in, is the multi-sport 
you know, deficit, meaning guys are, are just like, well, I'm a hockey player. This is my personal coach. This is my mental coach. And this is all I'm doing instead mm-hmm. of just getting on the playground and learning the way you should learn. Mm-hmm. So we have so many kids that come in here. They can't jump rope. They can't skip. Um, they can't skip and catch a ball. They can't skip, jump and catch a ball. All the all the motor can't patterns. Can't do a handstand. Can't do a cartwheel. Yeah. Yeah. So, can't do a somersault. Yeah. Like, so we're more. We think that's kind of basic. Like mm. there's a lot of kids that can't do stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So we're you know we do more Eastern European. You know like I remember when I was over I was 18, 19, and when I was in East Germany training, and I've talked to a couple of Russian guys as well that I, that I've worked with, and they're their training is so well-rounded meaning they all did gymnastics um, which is huge we kept our kids in gymnastics Um, they do swimming they do running they do jumping they do so many different sports because that really should be until like 8 to 12 year golden year should be the area where all the wiring is being connected right Mm -hmm. and so we don't need you to come in and learn how to do a one-arm snatch or a plyo jump like you should just do it in gymnastics and you should do it in swimming you should do so you're building this huge engine that again once they're 16 or 15 16 17 then we can start to put load on that engine so you know the concern is that they're you know they're narrowing and lowering the ceiling by just doing specific stuff like yes it is approved to do a you know bear crawl on the ground and it is but it's not it's not enough it's not like an hour and a half of gymnastics that's tumbling jumping you know climbing on things getting grip strength doing all these other motor pattern skills um you know our kids laugh at us we have guys that come in and they're nhl guys and we do races you know doing hula hoops (laughs) like and we do crazy stuff yeah but even our special ops guy said he's like like where did you where'd you get that he's like we actually find experts around the world and this is the stuff we do you think all oh, you know navy seals and you know they're doing all this is the stuff we do to get better yeah and so we want to do that with the kids to build that base instead of just saying hey you got a private lesson here you know let's go out and you know work with your strength coach for a little bit you're going to work with your shooting coach for a little bit and then you're going to work with a track coach for a little bit it has to be more freedom, right? More freedom of play. Because that last thing you said is what happens for a lot of people. They'll go to one coach to do one thing, then yeah. another do another thing, and it becomes so specialized yeah. at well, such a young age. Well, are they all yeah. communicating? Yeah. They're not right? yeah. Like, are they all then on really the same page? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So we're out, you know, today we're out, we go, we're speed skating, right? You only go left. So we're doing hockey stops on the right skate. We're doing, um, you know, drills through the cones on our on our right leg. We're skating backwards, drilling. Cone. Well, we don't go backwards. How did that go? Did you no. get any video? No. <laughs> no so we're, we're doing all those things to, to fire up that nervous system to get ready for hmm. being a good athlete is the better final product with a ceiling that's like Bonnie said. As high as she wants to go, she can go because she had all the other all the other skill sets Mm -hmm. you know there so very important for us to do that than just specific training 
My last question for you is this place where we are, it's, it's an amazing physical just to go out and you just showed me a little bit of the place uh, and a lot of us can read about it and you have this nice website shows the history of it, the timeline and everything, but just on a personal um, level, what this building means to you both and if there's a specific memory or two or some aspect of the building that's most meaningful to you and your lives. Well, I, I, starting with me, I think partly, as I said before, like before the building was here, the footprint of the ice was the same with no roof on it. Mm. So, I mean, our memories go back mm -hmm. to there. Um, the blue benches that are in the middle of the rink that they put their skates on are the same blue benches that were in the warm-up house that were with the old facility, <laughs> you know? So like, you know, the things like that, like you look at that and you're just like, oh my God, that those are the same benches, you know? And they'll probably still be here 30 years from now, I don't know. <laughs> um, but, I, but I think, you know, to, to know that, and you know, cause Dave was part of that too, Dan Jansen, myself, Dave, like kind of our era was, part of the reason that this place got built so number one that's that's pretty you know i'm not saying we're the only reason but that was our era and be, because of our era this facility got built and that mm -hmm. was that's pretty cool um you know prop you know my best well i've got a couple memories but one of my best ones was i won the world sprint championships here in 1995 I skated one more year after the Olympics because I knew the world sprints were going to be here. And there were like 300 members of family and friends that came here to watch me skate. Um, some had never seen me skate ever before in person and then would never see me skate again afterwards. And, you know, that was that this place was electric and um that for sure I'll never forget. Um, but it was also pretty special to um, see my daughter compete here at the Olympic trials, um, you know, four years ago. Um, like for her, it was it was an awesome thing just to make the Olympic trials. And then she made the Olympic trials and skated each race. She got to do two 500s. Each one got faster than the other one. And and that was that was pretty special um, to watch your kid do something that both parents still to this day have such a strong passion for. But now that passion's really become hers. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can think of memories because, like Bonnie said, there's so many, right? Mm -hmm. I mean. She carried the torch in here. She oh, won the world I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's, little detail. Well, little detail. detail. <laughs> 2002 games, I carried the torch in here. But. Yeah, I mean, great races that we've had in here. There's, I, I guess, to me, it's it's lucky, right? I feel very lucky that, that the building is here, that we're able to do what we do every day, um, that the proximity from where I grew up to where we live now... Um, yeah, I mean, we're just lucky. There's two of them, right? And we happen to be parked in a in a location where, you know, we get to skate and watch skaters and our daughter skates and our son uses the facility. It's just lucky that um, that the community has a facility like this that, mm -hmm. that we can that we can use. Yeah. Um, and, and we hope, again, that we carry that through Dash. We carry that through 
the next number of generations that we can, you know, show what world championship, world class performance is. Um, you know, we've had awesome Olympian track people that have been in here, walker, Olympian walkers that have been in here. Um, you know, we just, it's been high level people that come mm-hmm. through this building. And I think it's continue to, um, as, as you said, hey, what is this building? You know, get the word out that the Pettit is here, mm-hmm. um, that there is an Olympic movement um, in Milwaukee. I think that's very important. There's never going to be probably an NHL team here. You got the Brewers, you got the Packers, you're not going to be an NFL team here. They're way up there. Um, so I think in this community, you have the Brewers and the Bucks, and, you know, we love to make the Olympic theme like Omaha does a great job, right? They always have the Olympic trials. It's a huge sports city. Um, and Indy, And too. Indy does a great job of becoming known as an Olympic city. Um, and I think we had that for a number of years. Uh, Lance Allen's been great and always helps us to get a story on. And, you know, but they've lost some of the Olympic movement um, mm-hmm. attitude here, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think that's, again, what we're trying to get back with Dash is, hey, let's get this building back to being alive. And when people drive by, they go, ah, oh, that's, that's where the Olympians train. That's mm-hmm. where the gold medalists train. That's that's what we want, again, mm-hmm. for this building. Mm-hmm. So we want to bring those memories for the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so then maybe back to the like the whole mentorship or whatever that you were kind of talking about earlier. So when I raced that um, that first Olympic trials myself, I was paired with Leopoldus Mueller, who went on to win a silver medal at the mm-hmm. Olympics. In that race with her here in Milwaukee um, for Olympic trials, she set a track record. And she came up to me afterwards and congratulated me because she said, if it wasn't for me pushing her down the first hundred, she wouldn't have gone as fast in the final end of the race because she didn't expect me to go that fast. So, I mean, that's how... Like Dave was saying, the you know, those trickle-down effects, mm-hmm. you know, here's, you know, Leah who becomes an Olympian, who becomes an Olympic medalist in Lake Placid, and she said that to this little kid, you know, kind of, I yeah, I was kind of a little kid at that point, you know, and that sparked that thing in me that was like, all right, well, I want to do this again, yeah. like, this Olympian just said that to me, you know, like, who am I? But like, those are the things that like you, that you want from one generation to take to the other, to take to the other. Those are the special things that, you know, they're priceless.